as Nathan mentioned, we're um, in the midst of our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And so we're going to be in Matthew 6 this morning. My focal point will be from verse 14, but I'm actually going to um, going to cover a few things in the whole chapter here, just because it's all part of kind of one uh, one topic. I know Sam's going to be sharing on uh, praying the Lord's Prayer uh, next week, and I know that'll be good. But let me read from verse 14, and then I'll go back. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men... I'm also, by the way, apologise for my randomly gender-specific translation, but that's what I have. So if you forgive people, I'm using this one because I am actually going to point something out of it, so don't let me lose you. Uh, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, if you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with uh, a sad countenance. It's the King, New, uh, New King James Version, by the way, because uh, it's the only one that actually renders this if you forgive men. And in, I, it actually is kind of something that's important in the verse, so um, you're going to have to put up with the King James Version for the rest of the verse, I'm sorry. Um, For uh, they disfigure their faces so that they may appear to be fasting, assuredly I say to you they have their reward, but if when you fast you anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and... um, so that you do not appear to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place, your father sees in the secret uh, and will reward you. And the King James Version adds openly. Um, Lord, we pray as we share God, this part of your teaching that we would remember who we follow and we would remember what It is that you have led us to do, that you've taught us to do. And we pray as we open up, even through uh, the slightly complicated language of this version, God, that you will reveal to us the simple truth of who you are. Amen. We did this last week, so you'll be familiar. I don't know where all the night church crew are at. But turn to your neighbour, if you haven't got one, move, because no one needs to sit by themselves. Go find someone to sit with. Turn to your neighbour and say, neighbour, oh neighbour, don't forget who you're following. Turn to the other neighbour, and if you're still alone, you'll have to find another neighbour, and say, neighbour, oh neighbour, don't get your vision crossed. All right. Now, I have permission to do two things today because it is Mother's Day. To wear what I want. (laughs) Maybe I'm getting old. I'm having a slight midlife crisis. When I was 25 for Mother's Day, I got a skateboard and it was like the best Mother's Day ever. Um, Today, I got a vacuum. So I decided to dress like I got a skateboard. Is that okay? I bought the vacuum myself and I was like, this is what you're getting me for for Mother's Day. And it's one of those ones that does stuff by itself. So yeah, winning at life, right? Um, So, uh, but the other thing I am taking permission to do this morning is to tell some stories, just because I can. And you have to put up with it. You ever notice with kids how when someone laughs at something, it gets repeated? So kids, when they're developing their sense of humour, it's actually really entertaining. Uh, You see them get this idea that they've 
obviously done the right thing because people laughed at them. Who knows that's probably not true. <laughs> because there are so many times when we laugh at what they do, but we probably hope they don't repeat it. Um, so... We oh, the other thing I have permission to do, and I'm sorry, I hope this doesn't offend anyone, but I am going to say crap a couple of times, but only because my two-year-old did. Um, <laughs> so we accidentally taught him to say crap. <laughs> this has happened before, where they say something, and then they repeat, you know, you say something, and then they repeat it, but then because uh, you've laughed at them when they do it, uh, then they pick it up and it becomes like a really entertaining thing to do um, until sort of they get to a certain age where you can explain that it's only really funny the first time. Um, it's really helpful when they get that concept. Um, Torin, at this point, he, if you've been around in five minutes, have probably been told his knock-knock joke about 750 times. Um, it's the same joke every time. Um, but so this, uh, this week... I, as I do, had locked my keys in my car. Well, actually, Duncan locked them in the car because I left them in the car. Uh, my bad, he walked past, locked the car like a good human being, and uh, I have uh, not realised he's gone to work. And so I get up to go to church last week, and I'm already running a little bit late, not as late as this morning, but I go to put the kids in the car, and I can't find my keys. I have a little thing attached to my keys because this happens so frequently that it saves me a good part of my day if I can ring my keys from my phone. So I ring my keys. It tells me that they're in the front yard. I know immediately exactly what I've done and so realise my keys are locked in the car and there's really nothing I can do it about it because Duncan is on a train in Armadale somewhere. So he has the spare to my car. So Tash, here's my... Probably uh, slightly loud frustration. Tash still in her room, either studying or sleeping. I can't remember. We'll say studying uh, for her benefit. And <laughs> Tash uh, is like, take my car. I'll get a lift. So Tash gives me her keys and I go. Uh, she runs out to help me because by this time I'm now 10 more minutes late. Picks up Torin, takes him outside and takes the car seat that we have for these purposes, because this happens so frequently in my life, takes the spare car seat out and puts it in her car. Anyway, we get to church. Tash gets a lift with someone who was kind enough to pick her up on the way. All is well. Then to the next day, Monday, I go to take Torin out in the morning. I pick up my keys and we head out to the car. And he goes, we go in Tash's car? I said, no, we've got my, I've got my keys. We can go in my car. Um, and he's, he looks at me and says, oh, something, something, something in his, you know, as he does. And it's just that, uh, keys? And I was like, yeah, I have my keys. We can go in our car. All good, he reckons. He goes, looks at Tash, looks at me and says, yeah, Tash's car's crap. <laughs> at this point, we lose it laughing, as you do, you know, like a good parent. Uh, <laughs> by the time we recover ourselves, uh, I say, no, we're going in our car, Torrin, it's okay. And we're sort of discussing, like, why, why does he say this? And then I was like, as, you know when you test something? Like, was that a fluke? Did he actually say that? So I was like, yes, we're going in our car, Torrin, let's go. Um, and he, he agrees. And I say, oh, why? What do you think of Tasha's car? He goes, Tasha's car's crap. I was like, okay. This is strange. Turns out that as Tash was loading child and car seat into the car, uh, you know, the hydraulic, uh, or not hydraulic, like the air gas um, compression thing um, that holds the boot up, has went in an older car, has lost all of its compression ability, and so the boot slowly shuts when you open it. So Tash, as she's trying to hook a car seat up into the back of her car, had been hit in the back of the head with a car boot and clearly uh, made a statement about what her car was that Torin has now decided is the truth about Tasha's car. <laughs> so there was another one that has become a common saying in our household um, and every time 
we go to McDonald's, it's uh, the kids will make like a claim or, or they think it's funny and it's kind of been the ongoing, um, I think because we laughed at it the first time. So you know, if you're one of those normal human beings that removes the pickle from your burger, if you, you know, eat terrible food like I do, I mean, nothing. I never make that sort of food for my kids. Um, but if you're one of those people that remove the pickle from the burger, you know, normal, take it out, put the thing back on, um, all good, all is well with the world until you have this situation where you've removed a number of pickles from your burger and you think all is well and you go about eating your burger and then encounter the sneaky pickle. Have you ever encountered a sneaky pickle? Like, if you're one of those people that does the removing of the pickle, there is occasionally the sneaky pickle. And so, at some point, someone in our family has referred to something as a sneaky pickle. Oh, no, sneaky pickle. Yeah. So, now, every time the boys eat a burger, they refer to the sneaky pickle. Um, but the reason I tell you all of that is, A, because it was funny and I wanted to, um, but, B, because... Uh, Sometimes things are still present or things sneak into your understanding and you think that you've got it all figured out and all is well with your burger, but it's not. And when you bite into it, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. There are things that have been caught up in our understanding that we have not recognised are there. They're like the sneaky pickle where they will leave a bad taste, maybe not even just in our mouths, but in the mouths of others if we don't take the time to actually recognise and take seriously the teachings that we're talking about through this series and take the time to filter through our life and recognise what it is in our attitudes and our understandings and the things that God wants us to get right so that we actually can be the people that he's calling us to be. We spoke last week about seeking first the kingdom. And so this morning, I want to talk about what happens when we get our vision twisted. When we miss the mark and something enters our understanding and we don't quite see what it is that is the point our Christianity, our walk with God, our church life, all the things that we do in the name of Jesus, if we miss this, if we get our vision twisted, if we don't see where it is that we're supposed to be going, then there's a few things in this chapter that Jesus teaches if we get our focus set in the wrong place, we head in the wrong direction. Jared taught last week that we can't serve two masters. We can't serve both God and mammon. And the reason why it, a lot of Bible versions still say mammon and not just the God of money or money itself is because there's more caught up in that understanding than just money. And the reason it's kind of like a selfish endeavor, it's building our own kingdom, not the kingdom of God. And what this entire chapter builds towards is that statement that we can't both build our own empires and seek first the kingdom like Jared taught us last week. And here there's five different ways where Jesus teaches that we get caught up in building our own empires or our own kingdom and not seeking first the kingdom of God. So if we jump right back to the beginning of verse 6, it first opens up saying, take heed that you do not do your good works before others. So the first sneaky pickle in our understanding that's being highlighted here is we get caught up in the pursuit of social status instead of actually doing what it is that Jesus has taught us to do. It says, don't do good deeds for all to see, 
But you know what's interesting about this verse is only a chapter before it says, let your good deeds shine before men. So what is it, Jesus? Do we do things in public so that people can see? Or do we not do things in public? It seems like it's contradicting, but it's not. The point is the motive. The point is the why, the vision, what it's building. Because it goes on to say, so that you will be seen by them. Don't do your good deeds for the purpose of being recognised as a good person. It's interesting, the word we read it and in your Bible it probably says your acts of charity, your good works, your good deeds is a Greek word that actually means kind of like the Romans' reasonable service. This is kind of what's expected. This is what we should do, what is right, what is righteous, what is balanced. It's not actually saying the things that, you know, we would see as or look publicly at people and go, oh, wow, they did these amazing things. This is actually saying that these things are works set out for us. The, The right thing to do. Don't do the right thing just so that people think you're a righteous person. So it's not about showing off, but it's about showing who God is. And that's the difference between the reference in chapter 5 and the reference in chapter 6. It doesn't mean that no one can ever see what it is that you're doing. I, I think it was Jared that taught a while back on not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing and that understanding that it's that if we allow doing what is right to become second nature it's almost like when you don't uh, need to think about it anymore but you just carry on doing it as if it is just the natural thing to do this is how we seek first the kingdom So it's not about gaining afterlife brownie points. So we often look at these verses about praying in private, about doing a good deeds, not before others, and see it as a winning point system so that we can have some sort of... That's still building our own... That's still a selfish motive. When it's all about, and we use language sometimes in the Christian world about rewards in heaven. But Jesus teaches that those who do with that motive, they have their reward. And the implication is not so much that we're going to get some sort of financial or some sort of, uh, you know, physical blessing or or a thing that, you know, you get this reward as if, uh, you know, you've worked and you're getting paid for what you do. It's actually the implication is that the reward is lost when we do things according to our own motive. The reward is actually that we grow into becoming who Jesus has called us to be. It's spiritual growth. It's a development that comes when we learn to lay down our own agenda, put aside our own empire, building agendas, and actually seek first the kingdom. It says, don't sound the trumpet. It's literally a slight against, like, don't make out like it's a big deal that you do what's right. It's also interesting that the good deeds, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing and not sounding trumpets and being public about what you do, actually has really serious implications in the context of where 
Jesus is teaching where those who require acts of charity are often on the fringe of society, already experiencing shame and isolation. And what Jesus is teaching is a way of serving those who are the least and the last in a way that doesn't stigmatize, in a way that doesn't declare, look, I'm so good and you're below that I can give to you. It's actually saying if you do it, not knowing what your left hand is from your right, like it's, it's a way that you can actually serve others so that it doesn't shame others. It's recognizing that we need to actually approach it from a place of humility. Because other people's dignity counts in the economy of Jesus. So we have social superiority. The next point, it goes on about praying not like the hypocrites. Religious superiority. This is a good one. How often do we feel in a place that maybe we wouldn't give a meal to someone who needed it in a way that would shame them, but we feel quite free to walk all over someone's way of seeing the world in a way that shames them publicly. We take to public forums or the way that we deal with others, whether it be making statements in the media of judging and stating that someone's going to hell because of what they or how they see the world or, or, or maybe it's that we comment on someone's Facebook status in a way that tries to make them look stupid or, or tries to shame their p- point of view. We take a position of religious superiority. See, it's about presidents and pastors who pray in front of others and pay lip service to the name of Jesus. But behind closed doors, they pray P-R-A-Y-E-Y on women. It's about people that outwardly will take the name and the form but not live the inner life that's required of someone. Prayer is supposed to be about shaping us, not shaming others. And our religious life is supposed to be about shaping us, not imposing on others. And if we do that well, we will love well and we will lead others into a place of wanting to encounter God and it doesn't work the other way around. So using prayer for power over someone can never it can never be a good outcome when prayer was supposed to help us to recognize our need for God and our need for others see it's not about keeping your religion private Sometimes we take from this passage that we're supposed to keep our beliefs to ourselves and never talk to others about... It's not the point. See, religion is by nature a public endeavour. Following Jesus certainly is. And so it's about walking this balance of how do we love without taking a position of superiority or believing that we're better. And the way that we do that is to love in a way that looks like Jesus. All right. It's about turning up the Hillsong worship CD at work, but turning down the news when you get home and not seeing the people that are suffering. Not recognising the way that the 
current budget impacts those that are the most vulnerable or the people who are suffering on Manus or the violence against women that is a massive issue in our nation. It's about turning up a public profile and not being formed by who Jesus is. This is the difference. It's not about shutting away everything that you believe so that no one ever sees. So we have social superiority. We have uh, religious superiority. Then it says, where I started, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This is why I used this version. We're talking here about moral superiority. See, because if you harbour unforgiveness, you make yourself the judge. If you live in a way that's unforgiving of others. And so the reason why I wanted to use this version and I checked in the Greek, it's probably a better way to see the verse. It's not talking about individual. The word is not uh, speaking of forgiving the act of an individual. It's talking about living in a way that's unforgiving of people around you. And so if you forgive men, that's why... So it's the other... Because they, in later versions, try to kind of gender neutralise the language, it's like if you forgive humans, but that would read kind of weird. But like if you forgive people around you. If you live in a way that is forgiving of others, you bring glory to God. But if you are unforgiving of those, who knows people who are unforgiving of anything? You know, it's like the littlest thing and you've crossed it like, and they're hard to live with, right? They're hard to love sometimes when you're worried that you're always going to offend or you're always going to do the wrong thing. I think sometimes, uh, being kind of involved in certain circles of uh, like activism and stuff like that. You can cross certain, like people have an idea of how things need to be and they can be pretty unforgiving when you don't agree with what they think. I think the same can be said in some, you know, circles of Christianity where there's a certain way of seeing things and we can be very unforgiving of those who look at things differently. And by unforgiving, I mean not that we can't have an idea of what we know is right, but it's the way that you treat others. It's the willingness to judge, to make statements like uh, that speak to the worth of a person based on the fact that they believe something differently to you or see something differently to you. It's about disagreeing in ways that are unforgiving. It's living in a way as if everybody owes you something. If you're unforgiving of others, it's as if the world owes you the need to like walk on eggshells or to uh, the need to uh, constantly appease. It's as if you expect, and we, we all do this. This is not like a them. We all have places where we're unforgiving of the way others look at things or the way others act. But the problem with being unforgiving is if everybody owes you something, we're back in a place where there is debt of one human to another. And the problem with that kind of position being taken in humanity is it ends in a place where we justify slavery. There's two things that happen when you live in a way like everybody owes you something. You will either end up a loner because no one wants to be around you, or worse than that, you end up the oppressor. 
we often act that way out of our own hurt. And this is why we need to allow Jesus to transform the pain in us rather than letting it affect the way that we act towards others because we can actually take that pain and treat people in a way that we become the oppressors of people around us. It's a critical spirit. That judgment word in the Greek is krinos. It is where we get the word critical from. So when we judge others, we carry that critical spirit in a way that we treat people as if the world owes us something. The fourth one is spiritual superiority. Goes on to say, do not fast in a way that people know. This is the kind of projection we give when we, we have a word for it now, actually, kind of um, sums it up virtue signaling. It's like, I'm going to do what's morally superior or, or what's. We do it in church a lot. We're real good at it, actually, and it's kind of where the word um, virtue signaling came from. We set ourselves up in a place where we judge each other by how much we do certain things, how well we do certain things, whether we come enough, attend enough, achieve enough, fast, pray, read, know enough. And because we treat each other like that, we develop a subtle understanding, the sneaky pickle, (laughs) where we don't realise that we begin to live out of that. We begin to pursue a kind of faith that projects an outward spirituality but doesn't actually go to any depth. This is not a condemnation of fasting or accountability or talking about the things that are spiritual. It's, a, it's speaking against performing what should be private. I think another area that this speaks to is leveraging suffering. I'm so glad we've come to a place where we can actually talk openly in many contexts about the suffering. We can be more real with each other. You know, there's less stigmatization of uh, things like mental health or, or uh, you know, when people are grieving, it's more, you know, there was a time where it's socially taboo to be honest about your feelings. And I, I fully endorse the fact that we have moved beyond that reality. But there's something going on in our culture, and I, I don't know if it's the social media um, element or what, but sometimes we can go beyond honest and transparent and we can move into a place where we leverage our suffering or our story uh, and try... Someone put it like this to me, is giving glory to your past or your situation instead of giving glory to God. It's like we sometimes share our testimony and that sort of thing and and we talk more about how dramatic it all was and those things are real but actually neglect to see how Jesus has worked from there and share how and glorify him. It's important to tell stories and recognise But when it's not about what you share, it's about why. Do we share those stories to glorify God or do we leverage those things to gain social position? To make people respond to us in a certain way? To build 
our kingdom. You know, if we have enough people who like us for whatever reason, we're placing our faith in the things of the world and not in Jesus and who he is. And ultimately, that's the summary of all of these things. So these are all ways that we can get caught up in the ways of the world and conforming to the ways of the world in being self-focused instead of Christ-focused, being self-absorbed instead of being changed by who he is. And this is what I believe all of this speaks to. And this is why we need to address these things in ourselves. I'm going to finish so the band can kind of make their way up here. See, basically the sneaky pickle is our ego. It's our selfish endeavours. It's pride. It's individualism over diversity. So the difference between the two, one recognises the beauty in difference, in, in knowing who we are and who God made us to be. It's all still about telling your story and getting to be all that God's created you to be. But individualism makes that God instead of submitting that to God. This is the reality of probably uh, more our Western world than some other cultures. This is definitely the sneaky pickle, I think, in our faith that we need to identify and pull out before it leaves a bad taste in not only the mouth of those in church, but the rest of the world. I believe it's what's led us to a place where often the world sees the church as not much more than a summary of those selfish endeavours. But if we would identify those things and lay them down and begin to seek first the kingdom, see, it's incredible that God himself knew us well enough to speak exactly what we need. Seek first the kingdom. And that means not seeking our own agendas. So as the band begins to play this morning... We need to take a moment, maybe close your eyes. I think the easiest way to identify some of these things that we have going on is maybe the way that we are aware that we've left a bad taste in the mouth of others. Maybe we had a conflict with someone, and if you think about it, There's something that we've touched on that Jesus taught that contributed to that conflict. Maybe you took a position of moral superiority. Maybe you were caught up seeking to get your own way. Maybe out of hurt, you've been unable to forgive and so treated those around you like they owe you something. Maybe they even did owe you an apology. But those things affect the relationships around us and they ultimately affect our connection with God. I used to think seeking first the kingdom meant living everything exactly kind of how I thought I wanted to live, seeking to, you know, make a good life, have things go well. And just making sure that you put having a good relationship with God and spending time with God in the top of that list of building that good life. 
See, the problem with that is we're not quite getting the whole picture. We've got our vision twisted. We're seeking something that looks just like conforming to the ways of the world and trying to appease conscience by adding adding church attendance, adding charity work, adding tithing or serving or praying out loud, learning Bible verses. But to seek first the kingdom means first getting our vision straight. Knowing what it is, and this is why we've been talking about what it looks like what the kingdom looks like. It looks like who Jesus is. This is why we've talked about and are talking about what Jesus taught. Lord, we pray that we would get our vision straight. That we would see with your perspective, God, that we would desire to seek first the kingdom, but to do that we first need to know what the kingdom looks like. God, we pray that you would reveal to us what your kingdom looks like, that you would, our open, you would open our eyes to your ways, that you would show us who you are. Lord, we know that we so often get caught out by these attitudes, these things that sneak in, the effect of being surrounded by consumerism and things that teach us to focus on anything but your kingdom. Help us to identify. Forgive us for ignoring. Forgive us for turning down the news when we're turning up everything that projects an image of being a good Christian, God. Forgive us for turning down your word in our lives and what you've placed on our hearts and turning up our own achievements. Forgive us, God, for placing more emphasis on what people think of us than being changed by your Teach us to do things your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Father. As we come around a time of communion, as we come together to, to remember the, the sacrifice, as we come around to remember what Christ did for us, what all of what Pastor Tara spoke on today is, on. It's quite amazing how when preparing for today um, the theme forgiveness uh, was first and foremost in my mind it was paramount and quite clearly the spirit of God is at work. The communion table, the, the last supper on which we refer back to so often uh, when we look at communion is all about forgiveness. It's centered around forgiveness. Think back of the individuals who were enjoying that table at that time. They were people that had been with Jesus. They were uh, his disciples, his closest group. Um, people with whom he'd spent three and a half years pouring his life into. And in that group of people were people that he knew would betray him, abandon him, forget everything that he taught them, and run as far as they could when the pressure came. And yet, he sat down and shared a meal with them. And he said, I love you with an undying love. 
I love you regardless. I love you in spite of. I love you because of. The theme of forgiveness is so strong in the communion table. And it's there to do one thing. Draw us together. Communion, to commune, to come together. To surround yourself with those with whom you share a love. To surround yourself with those with whom you share faith. To surround yourself with those who perhaps you harbor an unforgiveness for. To surround yourself with people who not necessarily are always on your list of first people to go and seek out. That is forgiveness. That is true forgiveness. And Pastor Tara so eloquently stated it today. That that forgiveness is unconditional. It doesn't come with strings attached. It doesn't come with, I'll forgive you if. I'll give, forgive you when. I'll forgive you when I feel that I'm at a place that my forgiveness to you is going to have the most impact. There's no value in forgiveness other than the release for you who's doing the forgiving. To forgive the other person is releasing chains and shackles on them, yes. But more so, it's releasing the chains and shackles on you. The forgiveness is a gift. And Christ shrouded and covered that forgiveness above all with grace. It's an act of grace to forgive another because it's unrewarded, it's undeserved, it doesn't hold any sort of monetary value. And neither should it. It should be come from the heart, it should come unconditionally, and it should be wholehearted. So I would encourage you today to, just as you're sitting there in your seats, let's close our eyes, let's reflect, let's look inward a little. And in our introspection, as we look inside ourselves, let's reach out to those who we might have an unforgiveness for. Somebody hurt you, yeah? Maybe at this time, and you know, as many have said it today, Today's Mother's Day. That bond between mother and child can be the strongest thing, but it can also be the thing that causes the most hurt. And I encourage you today to, to reach out and forgive and also to accept forgiveness. If somebody says, I forgive you, then accept that and release them and release yourself. Father God, we thank you for your forgiveness, which was poured out in Calvary which was so completely and, and given without strings attached, without any demand for anything back. And as we forgive everybody, Father, who we need to, we thank you, Lord God, that they are released. We command a blessing upon them. We pray, Father, love them. Let them walk in victory. Father, release us as we forgive them that we may walk in the light that is Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've given us, for the love that was poured out upon us. And as we come together today, as we join around this communion table, Father God, as we, as we remember and bring to remembrance the awesome price that our Lord Jesus, that he paid for us unconditionally, as he gave himself. As we break bread and, and drink of the cup, Father, let us forgive. Let us remember. Let us love and come around in communion. Church, this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. Above all, it is his table. It's made ready for those who love God and for those who want to love God more.
So come, you who have much faith, and you who have little. You have been here often, and you have come for the first time. You have tried to follow Jesus, and you have failed in following Jesus. There are many of us here. And you who have just decided to follow Jesus for the first time. Come, let nothing keep you from love's feast. Let nothing get in the way of you coming to this table today. Forgive those who you need to. Let nothing empty this table of its power. Leave judgment behind. There is no condemnation here today. Receive mercy. Leave indifference behind. Recognize God's family, those who are around you, who are with you today at this table. Leave now, if necessary. Go and be a forgiver. I think we've done that today. Run back, knowing that you are forgiven. It's the Lord who invites you. It's God's will that those who desire Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit, should encounter him here today. So come. Holy Spirit, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that you have moved in and through this place, in and through this service. Hallelujah. Amen. Before we leave, we're going to do our benediction. And I don't know about you today, but I found the message for me quite convicting. I'll be the first to put my hand up and confess that, yeah, a lot of the times I can have the wrong motivations and the wrong intentions. And so it is, um, yeah, yeah, taking communion, being reminded of God's forgiveness even for me doing in that. And yet I pray that for all of us that our lives are changed through the message and that God's Spirit works in us, that we may grow more and more like Christ as we leave this place, which leads us to our benediction. So if you are able, you're all standing already, but if you're able and willing to stand, uh, we're going to read this benediction together as we close the service today. So let's read together. Church, we have come as we are, but by his grace we are sent out not the same. For in this place the Spirit has anointed Christ. He's been poured out on us. He exchanged a crown of beauty for our ashes, the oil of joy for our sorrow, a garment of praise for our spirit of despair. He has spoken over us a new name, Oaks of Integrity, and prophesied we will grow into a canopy of his beauty to bless and rebuild this city in his unfailing, non-violent love. So go, broadcast good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, prophesy freedom for captives, let the blind see, set free the oppressed, live jubilee and forgive blessing our enemies because Christ has shut the book on vengeance. Go now in his liberating grace that pardons and empowers sinners like us to participate in God's kingdom of mercy. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a blessed day. Go in peace and love to serve the Lord.